Hi there. Sorry to interrupt, but I have a funny feeling that you might want to know about history podcasts. It just so happens I host a show called History of Asia. It gives you a broad overview, focusing on the stuff that still matters. I think it's hard to understand why any historical event remains relevant, unless you know what happens after. History of Asia starts off in the present. Then I explain how it got to that point by delving ever deeper into the past. If you'd like to join me on this journey, check out History of Asia by Christoph Arts. Trumpets blaring behind him, a 20-year-old Macedonian man by the name of Eropos advanced forward at a slow and steady pace. Nerves, adrenaline, fear, uncertainty, all battling for supremacy within his very being, as he tried to master all these feelings and focus on what lay ahead. The formidable army of Bardilis, king of the Dardanians and southern Illyrian tribes. Eropos was situated in the second row of his unit, his six-meter-long Sarissa pike jutting out through the small gap in between the troops in the first row, facing the opposing tribal spearmen that he could tell were approaching at a quicker rate. With considerably less cohesion, Eropos realized as he quickly glanced around, comparing them to the soldiers of his unit, moving with a level of precision that could only come from a near constant cadence of rigorous training and drilling over the past 16 months. Precision that his commanders demanded in all aspects of their daily routine, all too ready to hand out reprisals for those that failed to meet their high standards. Eropos was a young soldier from the coastal city of Erekleon in southern Macedon, just east of Mount Olympus. Although today he was far from his home in enemy-occupied Upper Macedonia. Alongside just over 10,000 compatriots from all over the kingdom in the newly formed army of Philip II, he was recruited into the army in 359 BCE, and since then had been subjected to an unrelenting training regiment, certainly far more intensive than what the more veteran Macedonian soldiers had previously been used to before Philip had come along, drastically reinventing the Macedonian military, including the infantry that was now the backbone of the Macedonian army, renamed as the Pesetroi, or Foot Companions, which Eropos was proud to be a part of. And although of common stock, he was getting paid well, and his role in the army came with honors and distinction that his family proudly and repeatedly bragged to their friends about. All of this made possible by Philip II, who had breathed new life into their nation that for so long had been subject to the whims of other foreign powers. Eropos quickly glanced over to the right to spot Philip leading the Macedonian hoplite-like shield bearers into battle. Now that was how a leader was supposed to act. Training with the troops, leading them from the front, sharing the same dangers facing every soldier. This helped to calm the emotional storm raging inside of him, following Philip's example, inspiring him and all the Macedonian soldiers to move forward. He even had a memory of Philip once slapping him on the back with a jovial laugh, tossing a brotherly insult his way, having overheard Eropos complaining about sore feet following a particularly arduous march. 
but also helping him to understand that all of this training was in anticipation of key moments like this, where Philip intended to ensure that no one else save the Macedonians would be so prepared for battle. Several meters out, Eropos heard his commanding officer yell out to brace themselves, just as the tribal spearmen smashed into their line with a sickening crunch, the two lines quickly finding themselves locked in a grinding and laborious pushing match. Time slowed for Eropos, his whole world becoming the clamoring mess of action in front of his limited view, unaware and for the time being not really caring what was happening outside of his range of vision. His strong arms expertly thrusting his sarissa, the long pikes of the foot companions doing an exceptional job of inflicting casualties and keeping the Dardanians and Illyrian warriors at bay. But they were a stubborn adversary, the veterans and victors over many Macedonian armies, viciously fighting back and not giving the Macedonians an inch to breathe. Though each moment, each minute that the Macedonians stood intact against them, their confidence hardened despite the sweat pouring down their faces. This continued for hours, requiring the thousands of opposing spearmen to reach deep into reservoirs of stamina they didn't even know they had, knowing that whoever broke first would be the end of them, retreat evolving into a ravenous feast for the other side. The Macedonian soldier right in front of him fell suddenly, with Eropos automatically, without even thinking, stepping out into the front to fill the line, improving his view not only to the snarling faces in front of him, but also to the realization that among the fallen and injured that were being trampled upon underfoot, the vast majority were their foes. Eropos roared challenges to his enemies with animalistic ferocity the nearby troops of his unit echoing his call. They would continue pressing, pushing forward, no matter what. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Episode 14 and the third part of the series exploring the lifetime, motivations and events surrounding Philip II of Macedon. Before getting into this episode, if you haven't done so already, you might want to begin with episodes 12 and 13, which lay the groundwork for understanding the factors contributing to the Kingdom of Macedon's unsteady footing, and how, despite a few bursts of success, it had been traditionally relegated as a lesser or underachieving player in ancient Greece and among the adjoining tribal nations of the Balkans frequently used as a pawn by the successive dominant nations that surrounded its domains. Macedon was a kingdom almost perpetually struggling to survive, compounded by deep internal divides and disunity which, not surprisingly, wreaked havoc on its sovereignty, stifling the powers of its monarchs to do anything but subsist or just keep afloat, going along with wherever the current of the proverbial river took them barely avoiding getting lost in the swirling whirlpools and smashing against the unforgiving rocks, and certainly not in charge of their own destiny, yet somehow, someway, finding a way to prevent a complete collapse. But in order to help fill in the gaps or refresh your memory as to where we last left things off, here's a quick summary of the last episode. In episode 13, we explored 
what the young Philip was up to while held for three years as a hostage in the city of Thebes from 368 to 365 BCE. All in all, treated quite well, while also being given an exceptional military education from a particularly talented generation of military leaders, profoundly impacting Philip during such a formative time in his youth, who at 14 years of age, right from the onset of his captivity, had demonstrated a keen interest in all things military. From these Theban masters of war, Philip learned foundational lessons that he would later build and improve upon, acting as the basis from which his groundbreaking military innovations were formulated. Lessons that were also heavily impacted by watching and learning about the sacred band of Thebes, a rather small but elite unit of great prestige, intensively trained year-round to a razor's sharp fighting edge, which was obviously beneficial at a surface level. However, underneath of this, the game-changing nature of the sacred band that struck a chord with Philip came an understanding that it was how they were used in battle that had been the key to the many recent Theban battle victories, serving a distinct purpose, intended to take on the best units of any opposing army and break them, disrupting the morale of the wider army and casting doubt in their ability to win. Philip was indeed fortunate to be gifted with such an exceptional military education. Fortune that was compounded because his time as a hostage in Thebes would also act as a reprieve, taking Philip out of the toxic culture that had embedded itself into the Macedonian royal court that saw a carousel of assassinations in his absence, finally ending with Philip's second eldest brother, King Perdiccas III, taking power in 365 BCE, who immediately reconfirmed Macedonia's submission to Theban authority and political objectives, sufficiently appeasing the Thebans who then allowed the 17-year-old Philip to return home to Macedonia. Although, this renewed alliance also came with the unfortunate byproduct of putting Macedon in direct conflict with the resurgent Athenians, who were rallying to cast Thebes down and regain the position as the dominant power in Greece. Upon returning to Macedon, King Perdiccas sent Philip to oversee the eastern portion of the kingdom, a challenge that Philip met with admirable skill performing quite well overall during his five-year tenure there, showing especially great promise in terms of military leadership, stabilizing Macedon's borders against the Thracians in the east and the Paeonians to the north. This, while the central and western portions of the kingdom wilted under the invasions of foreign heavyweights, first from Athens, that conquered two important southern Macedonian coastal cities, Methone and Pydna in 363 BCE, followed by an invasion from the west by King Bardellus of the Dardanians and southern Illyrian tribes, who had been a thorn in the side of Macedon for more than half a century, again reappearing to carve out more Macedonian territory for himself in 360 BCE, which Perdiccas bravely marched out against, but quickly ended in disaster with 4,000 Macedonian soldiers killed in the ensuing encounter, including Perdiccas himself, leaving the kingdom and its innumerable burdens in the little hands of his infant son, Amentus IV. With this crisis, the kingdom was taken to the very brink of collapse, 
unable to defend themselves, and with their other neighbors readying themselves to jump in for the kill. Interestingly, although no one knew it at the time, this would also coincide with the very beginnings of its meteoric rise to unimagined heights. Guided by Philip II's steady hand, who had been raised as regent and protector to King Amentus IV and the Kingdom of Macedon, who surprisingly didn't go off marching to war, but instead launched a diplomatic campaign, interpreting the needs of the neighboring rulers, finding ways to buy them off and stall their impending invasions, though Philip realized these were only temporary fixes. Somehow, he had managed to slowly begin pulling Macedon back from the abyss in the process buying him the valuable time he needed to begin innovating and cultivating the Macedonian military into an unrivaled force, with the newly fashioned Macedonian phalanx, the Pezetheroi, as the backbone of his reformed army. When we last left things off in episode 13, it was early 358 BCE, nearly one year into Philip's regency as the caretaker of the kingdom. Having, some would say, miraculously delivered Macedon from what was earlier on looking to be an imminent collapse, more recently scoring his first significant military victory in a rather convincing style, the improved mobility and training of his army already on display, surprising and absolutely crushing the 3,000 strong mercenary army procured by Argeus, the Athenian-backed pretender to the Macedonian throne then strategically sparing the lives of the Athenian advisors that had accompanied Argeus in the pursuit of obtaining a peace treaty with the mighty city-state, with Philip afterwards sweetening the deal by promising to remove the Macedonian garrison out of the independent city of Amphipolis. At the forefront, clearing the path for the Athenians to attempt retaking this rogue colony of theirs, with the adjoining message that Macedon would no longer interfere with Athenian objectives in the region, provided that they in turn didn't further encroach on Macedonian territories. Though the Macedonian cities of Methonia and Pydna would remain in Athenian hands, dangling the prize of this gold-rich city, more weakly defended and seemingly ripe for conquest, Athens came to terms with Philip fulfilling his end of the bargain, leaving the inhabitants of Amphipolis to defend themselves, hoping that the city's defenses, a formidable blend of natural and man-made barriers, would be sufficient to keep it out of Athenian hands. Of course, just like Athens, Philip had strategic designs on Amphipolis as well, being that its productive gold and silver mines, situated in the nearby Pangaeus Hills, would have greatly enhanced Macedonian coffers that were in a dismal state, this being one of the biggest obstacles to Philip sustainably supporting a full-time standing army. So based on this, you might be asking the question, if he already had a garrison in the city, why didn't he just conquer it right then and there? Beyond securing a peace deal with Athens, he didn't want to get bogged down in fighting and defending against the inevitable and heavy Athenian backlash. That would have simply been too much for Macedon, far beyond its growing capabilities. Plus, there were too many other threats and hotspots surrounding Macedon that had to be dealt with first, and he needed all the troops he could muster to face these threats. For now, 
he calculated that the city served him far better as a distraction for Athens to occupy themselves with, hoping that it would continue to evade their reach. Given that, while making progress and working at a furious pace, his reformed military wasn't quite ready yet to his satisfaction, requiring more time to continue drilling and training, molding them into a finely tuned and unstoppable force, unmatched in both skill and discipline, ready and able to face the monumental challenges that Philip knew lay ahead of them. Although the showing against Argeus and his mercenary army had been a promising start, in truth, the victory was a minor one, at least relative to the much greater dangers that continued to threaten his kingdom's security, including the Dardanians and Illyrians under Bardilus in the west, the Thracians in the east, and the Paeonians to the north of Macedonia's borders. But it was forward momentum, and for now, through that victory and the ensuing negotiations that led to peace with Athens, the kingdom of Macedon found itself with a little breathing room, for once not actively involved in a war with any adversaries whatsoever. Another notable positive out of the victory over Argeus was that it helped Philip to solidify his hold on power, since yet another pretender to the throne had been eliminated. However, owing to the practice of polygyny, or having multiple wives among Macedonian monarchs, including Philip's father, there was no shortage of male offspring possessing royal blood and consequently competing claims to the throne. Meaning that, despite his many successes thus far, Philip was by no means secure in his position. As you may recall from episode 12, in addition to Philip having two elder brothers, now deceased, he also had three half-brothers, Archelaus, Archideus, and Menelaus, born from his father's second marriage. And while the historical accounts are deeply hazy in terms of these events, it appears that around this time, the three half-brothers were conspiring in the shadows to usurp the crown, aiming to assassinate and replace Philip with Archelaus as king. However, the plot was uncovered and quickly fell apart, ending with Archelaus being executed by Philip himself, and Eridaeus and Menelaus escaping, making a hasty exodus from Macedon into parts unknown. Though, that's not the last we'll hear of them. Having succinctly dealt with this internal threat, and free from open hostilities with any surrounding external nations, Philip was aware that this peaceful lull in activity wouldn't last as it would just be a matter of time before the agreements struck and the payments issued in the previous year to buy the patience and satisfy the appetites of foreign aggressors would wear off. Accordingly, Philip continued to relentlessly drill and prepare his troops as if the impending wars were now at hand, ensuring that Macedon was ready and able to defend itself whenever the need arose, thereby instituting the basis of a national standing army ready to march off whether spring, summer, autumn, or winter, an idea that was most certainly outside of the norm in Greece at the time. Given the poor state of the Macedonian economy, however, Philip would have also been struggling to finance this costly endeavor, most likely by diverting huge proportions of Macedonia's meager state revenues into this enterprise, while slashing and sacrificing spending in other areas with another theory put forward being that 
Perhaps not all of the roughly 10,000 soldiers that he had at hand were yet full-time troops so as to keep costs more manageable. Though I tend to side more so with the former idea, because considering the scale and scope of Philip's military innovations, in order to be as effective as they were in such a short amount of time, I'm convinced that this would have required near constant training and reinforcement, thereby making the military a viable career path for Macedonian men, a professional occupation that paid well enough so they could afford to do it year-round, unlike past iterations of Macedonian armies, and unlike most nations in Greece at the time, with soldiering still being a part-time job, something the men would do in between peak farming activities, predominantly in the summer between planting and harvesting. Beyond the more obvious performance advantages that came with this, this also helped build unity and cohesion among the troops, as brothers in arms, in a constant state of readiness. Though it's abundantly clear that Philip was not just undertaking a defensive mindset, because as future actions would soon prove, he was fully intent on making Macedon the nation in that part of the world that determined when and where its wars were fought. Under his leadership, Macedon would no longer be simply reacting or subject to the whims of others, but rather the initiators, the creators of their own destiny. A stance requiring vigilance, the ability to immediately pounce when the right opportunities presented themselves, as Philip knew they inevitably would given the chaos of rapidly shifting alliances and the warlike climate of ancient Greece and the Balkans, allowing him to begin striking out at his neighbors that had long imposed their will on Macedon. Which, given what we now know of Macedonian history, especially in the years and decades leading up to Philip's leadership, included almost every nation adjacent to their domains. For now though, free from immediate threat, Philip continued the routine of arduous training while demanding fierce discipline from his troops. Every day, seeing them become a little more hardened, more strongly tempered, the unit's understanding of their distinctive functions in battle, how to work in concert with one another as a cohesive body, centered around the Macedonian phalanx as the anvil and the companion cavalry as the hammer. Though we're also missing one other key unit of Philip's early army, the Hippaspists, translated into English as the Shield Bearers. Which brings us to another feature of Philip's military genius, innovative disposition and adaptability, in that he had no qualms about creating or incorporating new types of military units into his armies, provided that it served a unique need or purpose that was not currently being met and that we'll see a lot of examples of as we progress through the story, over time adding depth and devastating elements to his dominant army, including light infantry, light cavalry, archers, slingers, and even a body of engineers for siege weaponry. A very different composition from the hoplite-dominated armies found across the majority of nations in that part of the world. While the porcupine-like Macedonian phalanx with its long protruding sarissas, was almost unassailable from the front, the cumbersome nature of these 6-7 to seven meter long pikes made this infantry particularly vulnerable to assaults on the flanks, and difficult to maintain its formation when marching forward on uneven ground. 
This is where the shield bearers would come in, forming the linkage between the phalanx and the cavalry, typically situated on the sides of the phalanx, frequently on their right, guarding them where most vulnerable, with some historians suggesting that they also served as the royal guard when not employed in battle, forming an elite arm of the Macedonian infantry, carefully selected from the cream of the crop of phalanx soldiers, but more versatile in terms of their use, armed and armored in a similar manner to the traditional hoplites that were common to most Greek armies, with shorter spears and the larger hoplon-type shields. But as one would come to expect, given what we have learned, much better trained in a manner akin to the sacred band of Thebes. Although the reality being, and I can't stress this enough, that the preparations would have been intensive for every single person in his army. In fact, a largely unprecedented physical training regime, far outside the norm of most armies in Greece, with a few notable exceptions, including perhaps the Spartans and a handful of smaller elite units like the Sacred Band. An unending cadence of ponderously long, fully equipped marches, exercise and general conditioning, formation drills and mock battles, that Philip himself regularly took part in, understanding how vital it was to lead by example, as he would later also showcase in battle, helping to inspire and bind the Macedonian soldiers to his leadership. All of this contributing to an unfaltering sense of discipline within the Macedonian army. As stated by Thomas Leland in his 1758 book entitled The History of the Life and Reign of Philip, King of Macedon, Everything that tended to luxury and indulgence was strictly prohibited. Their wives nor their servants allowed to attend as officers. This was very much the exception among armies in ancient Greece, as it was typical for soldiers that came from more wealthy families to have been accompanied by their own little entourage, in order to bring along some of the comforts of home while on campaign, though at the expense of slowing down the army with non-military personnel and excessive baggage. Whereas, for the Macedonian soldiers, the level of discipline expected was described as being on par with Spartan standards, including severe consequences if not followed to the letter of the law, regardless of what social class the soldier came from, whether a wealthy noble or commoner, no one was more entitled than the other. A couple of anecdotes that help illustrate this include Upon learning that one of his captains had commanded others to prepare a hot bath for himself, Philip, exasperated, lashed out, stating, Even a Macedonian woman washes in cold water in childbed, dismissing the man from his command. In another instance, finding that two high-level officers had brought a prostitute into the camp, Philip banished them not only from the army, but from the country. He once had a soldier flogged for leaving ranks to find water while another was executed for taking off his armor against orders. Harsh, yes, but from Philip's perspective, of vital importance in formulating soldiers, cohorts, and ultimately an army that would keep to their formations and follow commands, unerringly, like a finely tuned machine. An absolute necessity to make his unconventional tactics effective in the field of battle while also establishing a unified mindset among the troops, in that no one 
was bigger or more entitled than their unit or the wider army. Now, for all this talk of extensive preparations and discipline of the Macedonian army, asserting this in theory through training and mock drills was one thing. Whereas maintaining one's composure and nerve, remembering what to do next, keeping to your unit's formation while battling primal thoughts to drop your weapons and run, in the presence of an opposing force, shouting fiercely intent on cutting you down, was entirely something else. In all things considered, Philip's army was a completely unproven force, not only filled with new recruits, but with also new and old alike, having recently learned and continuing to be indoctrinated into a completely different way of fighting, which Philip was obviously aware of. But even for him, who had only been involved in smaller defensive engagements, and nothing particularly large-scale up to that point, was also an unproven commodity as a leader in battle. However, towards early 358 BCE, a prime opportunity arose to kick off his offensive strategy, and begin taming the surrounding nations in order to more fully secure Macedonia's domains, starting with the Kingdom of Paeonia, whose lands bordered Macedonia to the north. Paeonia, as you may recall from the latter part of episode 13, was a tribal confederation, loosely bound to its centralized ruler, a dominant tribal chieftain by the name of King Agis. That, about a year back prior to that point in time, Philip had sent tribute payments to, along with to some of the chieftains of the more prominent tribes that often acted independently from the wishes of their king, in order to buy their temporary pacification. However, when King Agis died in early 358, Philip jumped onto this opportunity and immediately began making preparations to invade Paeonia, understanding that Agis's death would coincide with succession squabbles. Philip would have gained some insights into the politics of this northern neighbor during his time as governor of eastern Macedon, and was under the belief that he could bend the situation to his advantage exploiting their inability to coordinate efforts while busy jockeying for power that could have easily cascaded into civil war, not only within Agis's tribe, but also involving some of the more powerful Paeonian regional chieftains, aggressively making their case to ascend to this centralized role. Contributing to a highly unstable environment, with the attention of the many tribes focused inwards, an inward focus that Philip was keen to capitalize on, before another was able to secure King Agis's vacant position. As such, with terrifying speed and efficiency, shortly after the death of the Paeonian king, Philip marched his estimated 10,000 Macedonian troops northwards into Paeonia, catching the distracted tribes by complete surprise, who, as expected, were unable to coordinate a united resistance. In a campaign absent of large-scaled pitched battles, the Macedonians began launching ferocious attacks on each independent tribe, focusing on those closest to the Macedonian lands in southern Paeonia, working their way northwards, picking them off one by one with ruinous raids. In order to intensify these lightning attacks and ensure that chaos continued to rain down on the Paeonians, it appears that Philip may have at some point early in the campaign divided his army into two parts. Philip 
personally leading one arm and his most trusted general, Parmenian, also known as Parmenio, leading the other. Each Macedonian contingent hardly stopping to take a breath before moving on to the next victim, the Paeonian tribes bowing to the Macedonians like a cascading column of dominoes. Quick side note on Parmenian, since we'll hear about him surfacing throughout the story. He was born from a noble family in Upper Macedonia, and considering that he was about 20 years older than Philip, although his early years are not documented, I can't help but assume that he had probably been a fixture in the Macedonian army for some time before Philip's arrival, slowly rising through its ranks. A rise that was later accelerated when Philip assumed the regency and control of the military, as a testament to observing Parmenian's considerable talent and skill to lead the troops under his command, to such a degree that Philip would come to rely on him more and more, coinciding with rewards and promotions eventually rising to become Philip's right-hand man or chief general, playing a huge role throughout the entirety of Philip's reign and beyond, also admirably serving under his son Alexander the Great. In fact, Philip held Parmenian in such high esteem that he often referred to him as his only general, and in another instance, clearly mocking the quality of the Athenian generals who always seemed to have a series of new generals at the ready every year. The Greek historian Plutarch quotes Philip as stating that the Athenians must be happy because they can find every year 10 fit to be chosen as generals. Since in many years I have found but one fit to be a general, and that was Parmenian. Thus bringing us back to our story here. With two Macedonian contingents on the loose in Paeonia, one under Philip and another under the command of Parmenian, two generals of exceptional skill working in concert with one another. The two armies performed exceptionally well, cleaving deep into northern Paeonia. In an astoundingly short time frame of several months or so, Paeonia soon found itself wholly conquered, under the thumb of Philip and subordinate to the kingdom of Macedon. Another byproduct of this Paeonian invasion was a military unit native to the region that Philip found compelling, and that he subsequently incorporated into his army, a light infantry type unit called Peltists, reinforcing the idea introduced a little earlier, that the innovative and adaptively minded Philip was always on the lookout for new unit types to incorporate into his army, provided that it had a specific role to play in battle that was underserved in his current configuration. And in many of these occasions, these would often be added after encountering them in the field of battle, realizing their effectiveness, each of these being a key piece of the puzzle to put together an unrivaled and complementary force. Peltists were an extremely light armored infantry, common to the nations of Paeonia and Thrace, whose primary weapons consisted of throwing javelins that could be thrown at a short range. When faced against heavy infantry like hoplites, peltists would often be deployed to launch their javelins into their ranks, and if the hoplites charged after them, they would simply retreat, their considerably lighter equipment allowing them to easily evade hand-to-hand -hand encounters, particularly in rough terrain, only to come back again to pepper the opposing forces with more javelins, wreaking havoc on their formations 
causing disorder which Philip's other units could then be used to exploit. Although Philip would recruit Peltists from various tribes and nations, those raised from the Paeonians from here on in would become a fixture within the Macedonian army, also playing a headlining role in missions and objectives requiring speed of movement through rough terrain that wasn't possible on horseback. Philip and his army's first real offensive campaign had been a resounding success, thoroughly dominating the unorganized Paeonians, which would have done a lot to bolster the overall Macedonian morale and Philip's confidence that he was indeed embarking on the right path. Of course, the rigorous training and stark discipline leveled on his soldiers had been shown to be essential for building a high-achieving army, but that was only part of the equation. As part of his groundbreaking innovations within the Macedonian armed forces came in the form of instituting a sense of military tradition, including accolades and rewards bestowed upon those in his service that had performed admirably or with distinction. For example, Philip created clear promotional pathways for soldiers within his ranks, with cash bonuses and land grants issued from any newly conquered territories. With the defining feature of this reward system being, at least within the confines of the army, is that it didn't matter what the social class of the soldier was, or where in Macedonia they originated from. It was how they performed that mattered, with merit being the primary factor through which recognition, promotions, and rewards were rendered, which underscores a related aspect of Philip's changes in that he was careful to make sure that the units themselves were mixed, containing soldiers from all over Macedonia. All this in view of engineering a military machine wherein the troops were Macedonian first, not possessing an allegiance to a particular region, but rather a professional standing army imbued with a national spirit. At the same time, binding these soldiers to their leader through respect and admiration which the ever-charismatic Philip amplified as a soldier's soldier, at complete ease out in the field mingling with his troops and referring to them as equals, a level of respect that was uncommon among military leaders of the time. And by all accounts, as mentioned in the last episode, when he was governing Eastern Macedon, it's evident that beyond Philip being well-suited to this type of martial lifestyle, he appeared to revel in it perhaps appreciating the simplicity, loyalty, and trust that came with this brothers-in-arms type of sentiment, in contrast to the copious intrigue and backstabbing that he had witnessed within Macedonian court life during his youth. Incidentally, Philip's court and circle of companions was evolving as well, more often than not selected from his military that almost constantly surrounded their new leader, drinking, socializing, and hunting with him a circle that, of course, also included members of the Macedonian nobility. But there was a new twist added to this configuration that gave Philip a little more leverage than the previous Macedonian leaders held over the nobility, with an underlying potential dark side that Philip could use to coerce or more overtly threaten compliance if needed. Around this time, Philip began requiring that young sons from noble families all across Macedon be sent to the capital in Pella to serve as pages and be educated at the royal court, on the surface acting as a prestigious assignment, affording these youngsters a top-notch education 
while also molding them into future military leaders in duty and service to the kingdom of Macedon, which reflected well upon the families themselves. In fact, in future years, elaborate facilities, training grounds, gymnasiums, and schools would be constructed in Pella for this specific purpose, with duties that included guarding Philip, attending him in hunting and battle, and often dining at his table, with the inevitable result being that, over time, these children growing into adulthood would come to revere and become fiercely loyal to their king. Though an underlying and strategic dual purpose to this was that these noble attendees also served as hostages, helping to ensure that the leading Macedonian families didn't step on Philip's toes or overtly meddle in state affairs. Not to mention that many of these young men would later become the patriarchs of their respective families, adhering to the wishes of their king and values that were instilled upon them during such formative years. From this, we can clearly see that Philip understood the importance of maintaining a strong sense of unity among his troops and the Macedonian people, including putting up barriers to inhibit internal division and meddling from the nobility. That had long added to the constraints placed on previous Macedonian kings. All of these changes were of absolute necessity if Macedonia was to truly unshackle itself from subservience to the other nations surrounding it, especially in the face of their next task. Despite the overwhelming success of the Paeonian campaign, the strategy that Philip employed had been based on an opponent, or maybe a better characterization being a series of opponents that operated largely in silos, independent from one another. So while a series of skirmishes would have been fought against the various Paeonian tribes, providing some valuable fighting experience for Philip's troops, a big question mark remained, in that the Macedonian army under Philip had yet to participate in a pitched battle against a cohesive, organized, and proven foe. However, given the exceptional performance displayed by his troops in Paeonia, Philip would have been optimistic, hungry to take additional steps forward, aware that his next actions would more than likely conclude in a battle against an enemy that fit that description perfectly. This was to be a watershed moment for the Kingdom of Macedon, win or lose. Shortly after returning from Paeonia in mid-358 BCE, Philip began looking westwards, intent on reclaiming the upper Macedonian territories that had been lost to King Bardilus. The modern reference point for this territory being the lands east of Lake Orid, the lake that today straddles the mountainous border between the modern countries of North Macedonia and Albania. Bardilus, now into his early 90s, but still amazingly hardy enough to ride a horse and lead his troops into battle, was a powerful tribal warlord of the Dardanians and Southern Illyrians that surfaced regularly in the last two episodes for good reason because he had bested the kingdom of Mastan time and time again over the better part of the last century, regularly thrashing the armies under the three preceding Macedonian kings. Philip's father, Amentus III, his eldest brother, Alexander II, and more recently, Philip's second eldest brother, Perdiccas III, the last instance, of course, leaving Mastan in severe crisis, with the death of Perdiccas and the loss of over a third of the royal army leaving what remained in tatters, 
disillusioned, and with severely broken morale. Although, as we know, these events would subsequently lead to Philip's rise, followed by his marriage to Audata, a close relative of Bardilis. From Philip's perspective, however, it didn't matter that their families were now linked through marriage, because the union had already served its original purpose, in pausing the hostilities and putting the brakes on Bardilis's invasion from the prior year thereby securing the time that Philip had been desperately seeking to begin the reinvention and reconstruction of the Macedonian army. Though, as soon as his troops came to understand who their next target would be, some of their expressions soured, notably the veterans of Perdiccas's army that had been thoroughly routed by Bardilis, with overtones of this sentiment felt throughout the wider Macedonian kingdom. Some who truly believed that this enemy who had squashed them at every turn could not be defeated. Understanding the insidious nature of this belief and the potential threat to their growing but overall fragile confidence, Philip, instead of intensifying training and discipline to keep them occupied, reached once again for pen and paper, which in classical Greece would have been a hardened reed dipped in ink and inscribed on papyrus preparing and then delivering a series of stirring speeches in Pella to both his troops and the wider assembly. The sort of speeches that you see in historical epic films that a leader delivers just before a climactic battle. And by all accounts, Philip was becoming rather exceptional at these types of rallies. Charismatic as always with strong oratory skills, speaking with an unwavering sense of confidence inspiring others to believe in this growing sense of Macedonian power and nationalism. With Philip's words ringing in their ears, propelling them forward, in late summer or the early fall of 358, the Macedonian army set off from Pella with Philip at the head of the column, making the 170-kilometer march west towards an area just east of Lake Orid, deep into the portion of Upper Macedonia that was firmly held by Bardilis. It's hard to imagine what Bardilis must have been thinking once he learned that a Macedonian army was coming his way. He would have undoubtedly been aware of the devastating campaign that the Macedonians had recently waged upon the Paeonians, though maybe not so well versed in the new weaponry and configuration of the Macedonian army. And his relationship with Macedon, heavily slanted in his favor, was actually peaceful for once and it was he who was typically the aggressor, keeping the Macedonians in check, not the other way around. Nonetheless, Bardilis was a remarkable conqueror in his own right, the veteran and victor of countless campaigns, and not one to shy from a fight. So he gathered his forces and set out from Dardania into Upper Macedonia, well aware of what Philip was after. Although perhaps a shadow of doubt was creeping into Bardilis's view, because while each army was marching towards one another, he sent envoys to Philip, making an attempt at a peaceable solution. Finding Philip unwilling to entertain any negotiations. Making it clear that he couldn't honorably allow for peace until all of Macedonia was restored to him, demanding that Bardilis relinquish all claims on these lands. To which Bardilis laughed at the idea of, a fight to decide their fates was now imminent, in the encounter that would become known as the Battle of Aragon Valley, also sometimes referred to as the Battle of Lincus Plain. 
taking us to the battle that we touched upon at the very beginning of this episode. Bardellus led his seasoned force of 10,000 infantry and 500 cavalry into an open plain east of Lake Orid. His troops, steadfastly confident in their ability to defeat the Macedonians, who time and time again had been found to be lacking in fighting prowess, unable to stand against the ferocity of the Dardanian and Illyrian tribal warriors. With Philip soon appearing over the horizon, fielding an almost numerically identical force of 10,000 infantry and 600 companion cavalry. As a quick side note, while we don't have the exact breakdown of the infantry, the vast majority of the collection was likely made up of Macedonian phalanxes, accompanied by the shield bearers and the lighter javelin-throwing peltist units. Also, there's a number of different versions of how this battle went down, so I'll provide the course of events that I think is most likely based on the accounts that I came across. Upon seeing the Macedonian army march into view, Bardillus commanded his spear and shield infantry units to form up into a long linear line with his best units at the center, their lines several ranks deep, ordering his cavalry to gather at the far right wing of his spearmen, resulting in Philip commanding his cavalry to mirror their position. One of the few proven units of the Macedonian army, confident in the ability of his superior companion cavalry to sweep the opposing horsemen aside. The Macedonian phalanxes, at this early stage likely formed in blocks of 10 soldiers wide and 10 soldiers deep, were then deployed across the length of the opposing infantry, intending to face them head on, followed by Philip himself leading the hoplite-like shield bearers to the right of his phalanxes, and the peltists positioned to their right. For a time, the two armies stood across the field from one another in formation, silent, neither Bardillus nor Philip flinching, or willing to offer up terms to avoid battle. Upon realizing that neither side was open to negotiations, and that battle was unavoidable, the opposing, equally sized armies would have begun roaring war cries up to the heavens. The Macedonians yelling, Enyalios, Enyalios, invoking the power and favor of the Greek war god Ares. Followed by the sounding of trumpets, signaling the Macedonians to begin a slow but steady march forward to ensure that their formations remained intact, including Philip who was leading the Macedonian shield bearers on the far right of the field. Bardillus then gesturing to his captains to press their forces forward, the Dardanian and Illyrian spearmen rushing forward at a quicker pace, still organized but with a little less cohesion. With a heavy crunch, the two lines smashed into one another spear points jabbing into each side, followed by a terrible mix of sound. Weapons striking shields, anger-fueled yells, shrieks of pain, sweat-inducing grunts, and shouts of encouragement from compatriots. As the respective infantries were locked in this precarious death hold, neither side losing ground or their nerve, the Macedonian cavalry surged forward on the left wing, heading straight towards Bardillus's cavalry who right from the onset found themselves hard-pressed by the famed Macedonian horsemen. There was an intense urgency pushing the companion cavalry forward, aiming to sweep the opposing cavalry aside so they could flank the main portion of Bardilis' army from the rear. As there was a great deal of concern on how long the inexperienced foot companions could hold out against the opposing veteran infantry. 
the Macedonian cavalry were more than equal to their assignment, setting upon the Dardanian and Illyrian cavalry with ruthless efficiency, decimating their ranks and sending the few remaining in flight, followed by quickly driving away any light infantry that Bardellus had brought with him as well. Now, it wasn't much of a surprise to anyone that the companion cavalry were performing so well, as they had been long recognized by friend and foe alike for their skill in battle. What was a complete surprise, however, was how well the Macedonian phalanxes were holding up across the entire line, their superior training regiment paying off when it counted most, and likely boosting their confidence by the minute their long Sarissa pikes giving them an extended reach, not only keeping Bardellus's infantry at bay, but also inflicting a serious number of casualties among the tribal warriors, who, to their credit, and despite the losses, did not fall back and continued to bravely fight on. Philip, from his vantage point on the far right of the Macedonian line, facing Bardellus's extreme left position infantry, would have been heartened to see the performance of his troops, though he could only watch in glimpses, being that he too was in the thick of battle, leading his versatile shield bearers from the front. Interestingly, not attacking head on, but at the last minute angling their approach, making it extremely awkward for the enemy infantry to defend against such a formation. Made worse by the Peltists, who had joined in launching their javelins into the fray putting yet more pressure onto the infantry units on Bardellus's left wing. For several hours, the grinding battle dragged on, the result still hanging in the balance. However, eventually, Philip's superior tactics began to win the day, forcing Bardellus to attempt hastily forming his infantry into a defensive square, since they were in danger of being attacked from the rear by the Macedonian cavalry. The ancient Greek historian, Diodorus Siculus described the battle as follows, and at first for a long while the battle was evenly poised because of the exceeding gallantry displayed on both sides, and as many were slain and still more wounded, the fortune of battle vacillated first one way and then the other, being constantly swayed by the valorous deeds of the combatants. But later, as the horsemen pressed on from the flank and rear, and Philip, with the flower of his troops, fought with true heroism. The mass of the Illyrians was compelled to take hastily to flight. The unrelenting inwards push of the foot companions as the anvil, the repeatedly fierce hammering charges of the companion cavalry, with Philip cutting a path into the defensive square with his shield bearers, supported by the Peltists, proved too much for Bardellus and his army, that folded and then soon collapsed in an epic fashion, retreating in a chaotic mess, which allowed the pursuing Macedonian troops that were nipping at their heels to inflict further casualties, which by the end of the day was estimated to be anywhere from 3,500 to as high as 7,000 Dardanians and Illyrians laying dead on the field, up to 70% of their entire army, which, although debated, likely included their ancient king, Bardilis since we never hear from him again. With the Macedonians only seeing losses of around 300 to 500 in this decisive and surprisingly lopsided victory. A victory that must have had an immense impact on Philip, in terms of validating the potency and effectiveness of his military innovations, 
given their exceptional performance against a proven force, while experiencing minimal losses in what had initially appeared to be a highly contested and hard-fought encounter. What remained of the leadership of the Dardanian Illyrian Tribal Confederation, wide-eyed and taken aback, but fully understanding the gravity of the result, lost no time in suing for peace, in the hope of preventing Philip from advancing further into their territories. Handing back all of Upper Macedonia, along with ceding some additional lands that Philip had demanded, these newest additions acting as strategic choke points through key mountain passes that were much more defensible from a Macedonian standpoint, greatly enhancing his kingdom's security in the west. The redrawn borders forming a defensive buffer against any future attempted raids, with another noteworthy addition to the Macedonian realm being the city of Damastion. It's debated whether this was an Illyrian or Dardanian city, and its location remains unknown to this day, but we do know that it was well known in antiquity for its productive silver mines, and following his victory over Bardilis, Philip took firm possession of the city, injecting a healthy boost to the flailing Macedonian economy. As such, Philip was satisfied with the terms for now and agreed to peace, his main objective achieved preserving Macedonian security which had been enhanced through these strategic gains, coupled with the fact that the Dardanian Illyrian power had been weakened considerably, splintering and falling into internal dispute. You see, Bardilis had been the glue that was holding all these tribes together. And without him around, the bonds between the various tribes within the confederation would soon begin to break apart. It wasn't that this threat had been wholly vanquished through this one victory, however convincing it was, but it had changed significantly. Philip understood that this could later result in some of the leaders of the smaller tribal contingents perhaps looking to become the next Bardilis begin encroaching on his lands. However, their reduced overall strength made for a much lesser menace to Macedonian territorial integrity in its western domains. Had Macedon not been facing the legacy of numerous other foreign threats to other parts of the country, I'm convinced that Philip would have followed up his victory at the Battle of Aragon Valley ruthlessly, driving far into Illyria and Dardania. However, that would have not been a wise calculation, given some of the more pressing concerns surrounding him. Plus, reports were beginning to filter in that another war was on the horizon, not necessarily one that Macedon was expected to become involved in, but that would nonetheless afford Philip with most literally a golden opportunity to enhance his kingdom's growing strength at the expense of his most powerful adversary. And Philip was determined to be ready to jump onto this opportunity. Accordingly, after burying his fallen soldiers and erecting a statue commemorating the stunning Macedonian victory at the battlefield in Aragon, with the west now more secured, before leading his army back to Pella in late 358 BCE, Philip then took further steps to augment his hold on this traditionally fickle portion of the Macedonian kingdom by marrying his second wife, Phila of the Elimia tribe a princess of one of the most powerful factions in Upper Macedonia. In addition to taking on an Upper Macedonian wife, Philip then kicked off a number of policies designed to more fully incorporate these traditionally pastoralist and independent tribes into the Macedonian fold. 
Like Philip had earlier done in the rest of Macedonia, he began more actively canvassing and recruiting troops for his armies here, inviting them to play a more active role in the future of the kingdom, including offering up prominent leadership roles within the Macedonian military for members of the upper Macedonian royal families visibly demonstrating and reinforcing that sense of nationalistic pride that he had begun laying the groundwork for, in that, under his leadership, any Macedonians, regardless of where they came from, would be given equal opportunities and potential rewards, provided that they too exhibited and maintained the high standards that had become the de facto baseline. Another undeniably effective policy that was started at this time involved settlement ordering new cities to be constructed in various spots in Upper Macedonia, such as the city of Ereclia Lincenstis, which today lies in ruins near the present-day town of Betola in North Macedonia, offering up lands and opportunities for wealth acquisition and a more comfortable lifestyle in these burgeoning cities, transitioning the native populace from a semi-nomadic lifestyle into farmers while also resettling people and families from Lower Macedonia into these new cities as well, making for a more cosmopolitan mix. All of this being a much more attractive prospect than simply living under Dardanian and Illyrian domination, and helping considerably to traverse the deep divides and disunity that had previously plagued the kingdom, which by no means was an overnight change but at least the beginnings of a slow process towards a more unified Macedon. As Philip and his victorious army arrived at Pella, they were received with elaborate celebrations, probably on a level of something akin to a Roman triumph, because this was nothing short of astounding to the people of Macedonia, watching Philip shouting to his continued success and the glory of Macedon, as he and his army marched on by to the capital. When just two short years ago, Macedon had been on the brink of despair, they now found themselves on a completely different trajectory, with the seemingly invincible and ever-present threat in Bardellus thoroughly defeated. This was not a sentiment that they were used to, and the bulk of the Macedonians, including the nobility, were hungry for more, with few questioning that Philip was the only one who could deliver even greater prizes. And even if there had been naysayers lurking about, few would have been willing to loudly challenge Philip, considering that he had the full backing of the army. Accordingly, the wild celebrations that followed in the aftermath of the Battle of Aragon Valley in late 358 into early 357 BCE also then coincided with Philip's official coronation as the king of Macedon, or at the very least, the affirmation of his previous ascendancy, though I tend to gravitate to the notion that this is the moment that it became official. Which is all well and good, but you may be asking, what of his young nephew, Amintas IV, the previous Macedonian king that Philip was named regent of in 359? Surprisingly, nothing happened to him. Having grown increasingly confident and secure in his position at the top, Philip showed a great deal of leniency when it came to Amentus, who would grow up in Philip's court and end up marrying one of Philip's daughters in later years, although his disposition towards his nephew would have most certainly changed if he ever made a play for the throne. 
which Amentus wisely never sought to regain. Instead of languishing in the wrappings of his newly bestowed power and title as the king of Macedon, Philip, ever the ambitious workhorse, continued to immerse himself into the development and training of his army. Convinced that his innovations and constant pursuit of improvement was vital to its, and thus, Macedon's ongoing success, including his ability to weave diplomatic magic, being that diplomacy in itself was nothing unless you had a military force capable of backing up your claims and demands. The new king of Macedon needed more men, not only to fill the lost ranks from the Battle of Aragon Valley, but many more, thousands more, for the battles that lay ahead to break through what was standing between Macedon and its supremacy in Greece. Okay, perhaps I'm reaching here a little bit, inferring that Philip so early on understood that he was on the path towards asserting Macedon as the future hegemon of Greece. Maybe that's too much of a stretch. But on the other hand, he would have been acutely aware that his next actions, if successful, would be very likely to result in a resumption of hostilities with the most powerful nation in Greece, this being Athens, who had deep pockets, enormous reach, and military capabilities by itself, and that were working towards the revival of the Athenian Empire, pulling together a collection of allies across the coastlines of the Aegean Sea. As you may recall from episode 12, Sparta was the city-state that had previously dashed the first Athenian go at forging an empire by constricting their city and ambitions into submission in 404 BCE at the end of the Peloponnesian War. However, since Sparta had tumbled from the hegemonic perch, followed by Thebes receiving a death blow to end their short tenure at the top, Athenian power was no longer being checked. And Philip understood that they would undoubtedly exert their renewed influence to amass allies in Mastodon's immediate sphere of influence, potentially stalling his kingdom's momentum. Because by this point, all of Macedonia's neighbors, upon learning of Philip's recent successes, were beginning to grow alarmed about his increasingly aggressive posture. Although Paeonia and the Dardanians and Illyrians had been brought to heel, Macedon's other bordering nations including Thrace to the west, the Chalcidian League to the southwest, Thessaly in the south, and Epirus to the southeast were unsettled. If the warmongering Bardilus could be defeated, their fates too could be sealed in a similar manner if they didn't take steps to protect themselves. Although, in the background, while battling with the Paeonians, Dardanians, and Illyrians, Philip had been active diplomatically as well, regularly sending and receiving envoys and communications with the rulers of these adjoining nations throughout 358 BCE, lining up ones that could be reasonably controlled to soon make offers that would bind some of these nations to his will without resorting to bloodshed, otherwise risk Athens swooping in to form alliances against Macedon instead. And make no mistake about it, Athens was by far his biggest concern. Beyond the Macedonian cities of Methone and Pydna that they still held in their possession, they continued to exert massive influence in Macedon's part of the world, thus impinging on Macedonian sovereignty and security, a reality that Philip knew had to be broken 
if his kingdom wanted to control its fate. Also knowing that this inevitable collision would put Macedon in the fight of their lives, against a formidable opponent that wouldn't simply disintegrate after one battle, as did Bardellus's tribal confederation. So through this, I tend to support the idea that Philip knew this would end up as a long-term war for supremacy in Greece, requiring elaborate preparations, planning, and more troops all raised to a fine fighting edge through year-round training. One huge obstacle remained to making this a reality, money. Despite the recent territorial gains at the expense of the Paeonians, Illyrians, and Dardanians, including regaining control over Upper Macedonia, the Kingdom of Macedon was still struggling economically. Although the situation was somewhat improved, with its lucrative lumber industry now under firmer centralized control and the recent acquisition of the silver mines in Damastian, while this helped to finance the professional force that Philip already had in hand, historical accounts make it clear that Macedonian coffers were still dangerously sparse at this time. Certainly not rich enough to keep up with Philip's ambitions of doubling and tripling the size of the Macedonian army. For this, yet more mountains of gold and silver would be needed. And Philip knew exactly where to find this, just beyond the eastern border of his kingdom, hidden behind the mighty walls and fortifications of the independent city of Amphipolis. That fortunately, despite having weakened its defenses by removing the Macedonian garrison from the city about a year back, had managed to remain independent, fending off several recent Athenian attempts to blockade it and starve the inhabitants into submission. Learning from their errors, Philip strategized that if he was going to make an attempt on conquering Amphipolis, this would require a whole new form of siege warfare because as the Athenians had just proved several times over, trying to choke the inhabitants out through blockades, which was essentially the typical method for conducting sieges in classical Greece, was simply ineffective against a city with such geographical features and formidable defenses. Not to mention the amount of time that would be eaten up in undertaking this approach. Philip intended to be ready to move at a much quicker pace, storming the city through a furious assault, requiring a body of engineers and the development of siege weapons. Quite the foreign concept when it came to armed forces in classical Greece, yet one that Philip wisely had already begun developing. However, if Macedonia were to conquer this gold-rich city, an overt challenge to Athenian ambition, Philip was convinced that the events that followed would very likely and immediately thereafter erupt into open hostilities with Athens, whose powerful navy second to none in Greece would then be dispatched to Macedonian coastlines, hundreds of triremes descending upon its cities. Well, that is, unless they were distracted with something else. Remember when I mentioned a little earlier that Philip didn't press further inwards into Dardania and Illyria after the Battle of Aragon Valley? because of another potential war that was bubbling up to the surface? One that would offer Philip a golden opportunity? In early 357 BCE, this opportunity arrived, with Athens becoming involved in a conflict known as the Social War, fighting against a number of smaller city-states that fed up with their domineering ways 
rebelled and broke away from the Second Athenian League, which was once again becoming twisted into an attempted revival of the Athenian Empire, providing the perfect smokescreen and triggering Philip to march off with his army in the direction of Amphipolis. In the next episode, we'll cover Philip's dangerous assault on the city of Amphipolis, wherein he uses equipment and strategic innovations, effectively ushering in a new era in siege warfare to breach and conquer its stout fortifications. Using this newly gained prize, along with savvy diplomatic trickery to recover the Macedonian city of Pydna from Athenian occupation, resulting in the reopening of hostilities with the Athenians, who despite having their hands full with another war, still had more than enough influence to line up a series of allies intent on reducing Macedonia to rubble, in particular the Thracians and Illyrians. Spreading the potent but still quite small Macedonian military power alarmingly thin, but finding it more than equal to the threats at hand, not only in meeting the challenges issued, but then systematically going after any remaining cities under Athenian control in or near Macedon's borders. A pursuit that will come only within inches of ending Philip's life finding himself lucky to escape death with only the loss of an eye, yet doing very little to slow down this Macedonian king, who, with his borders finally secure, begins to venture south into Greece, where he'll face new enemies and harsh lessons that threaten to put an end to the rise of Macedon. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. It would be greatly appreciated if you could rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions on future warlords that you think I should do an episode on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. And just before signing off, I want to take a quick moment to send out a very special thank you to all of you that have taken the time to subscribe, submit such glowing reviews of the show, and send me overwhelmingly positive notes of encouragement. Your support has been a huge source of motivation for me to keep everything going, and helps immensely to expand the show, getting it onto other people's radar. So thank you again for that. Theme music from Audionautics.com 